Hey everyone, it's Jason with the Create Initiative Podcast. Happy Labor Day to you. Well, for this Labor Day weekend, Kyle and I decided to take a little bit of extra time off. I hope that's okay, but we wanted to re-air an episode from season five with Paul Nevison. He is a filmmaker and a documentary director and uh, really, he's quite talented. And we had a wonderful conversation a couple years ago about storytelling and filmmaking and, and his his departure from Hillsong to the commercial space. And so it was really just a great conversation. But Paul's had some big stuff happen in these last couple of years. Here in 2019, he won the Young Director Award at Cannes Film Festival. So it's a big deal for Paul. And so a lot of great things are happening. And so we wanted to let you listen into this episode if maybe you missed it the first time or if you heard it the first time go ahead and listen to it again because he has some great great ideas and some great thoughts to bring forth so uh let's check out this interview with paul and kyle and i will be back in a couple weeks with a new episode People who may not be aware of uh, who you are and uh, where you're calling from right now, uh, could you tell people a little bit about who you are? Uh, yeah, well, I'm um, I'm a freelance uh, director. Um, I currently live in Australia uh, in a place called the Sunshine Coast, which sounds pretty great. <laughs> it's about uh, it's about an hour north of Brisbane on the east coast of Australia, um, and yeah, it's kind of me. Well, uh, do you do you have family and kids and all that stuff? Uh, yeah, yep, yeah. Two, two, two little girls, uh, eleven and eight, who keep me pretty, uh, pretty occupied. I'm married for, I think we're thir- 14, 13, 14. Oh, my wife's going to kill me. Uh, it's been, it's been, it's been a while. <laughs> it has been great, you know. Uh, well i may have to come back to that in a a while because i know you travel the globe but i mean that's that that's got to be hard uh sometimes leaving your family for extended periods of time i would imagine yeah it's always the sort of the bittersweet nature of travel's great and you know going to see other parts of the world and you know that's that's a, a big plus but um it's always tough when your wife has to do the single parent mode uh for weeks on end sometimes um you know, it's kind of fun now, like the kids, you know, they're sort of at an age where they're kind of understanding what I do and kind of so we look, you know, where am I going this time and look on the globe and, you know, <laughs> and, and I try to sort of bring them back sort of interesting things from the different places that I've been. So they've got like a little shelf with, you know, little dolls and, and sort of knickknacks and things that I've collected over the years. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's cool. I'm sure they, they can appreciate that for sure. But, um, well, Paul, I, I, I want to kind of start, um, you said you're a freelance director. And so let's, let's kind of start at the beginning. Um, when would you say you, you fell in love with the idea of filmmaking? Um, well, actually, uh, so the, the, so I guess the sort of the magic of cinema was actually way, way back. It was like 1978, actually, and I was four years old and my dad and my brother took me to the first Star Wars film and I was too small to fit in the, um, well, I could sit in the seats, but I couldn't see over the people in front. So I ended up in the, in the aisle, sitting in the aisle. And I remember for that sort of 90 minutes being completely captivated by and caught up in this huge, you know, it's a big screen and I've got four year old eyes. And it was, and I remember from that, from that time on the idea of storytelling and, and just being not necessarily making stuff, but just like being immersed in that and in in those sort of other worlds. Um, I just always remember that 
been, you know, a big part of my childhood and going to, you know, Saturday afternoon matinees and seeing all kinds of films uh, with my, you know, older, older siblings because I think my parents just wanted to have a break from us. <laughs> they would send us <laughs> off to the cinema on a, on a Saturday afternoon. Um, and then actually to, to in regards to making stuff, uh, we started making stuff when I was, I don't know, 12, 13 14 something like that a friend of mine his father was a school teacher and they had like a high eight uh, yeah. video camera that they would get on like school holidays and so we would start making our own films and you know just kind of silly stuff spy things and war films and you know all that kind of stuff um but i think sort of being in charge of telling our own stories was kind of attractive um at that time um, but it was only just a hobby. It was just something, you know, fun to do on the, uh, I never, never thought you could actually make a living out of it. Um, and that was, that actually happened when it was like a, again, it was the end of high school. I had no idea what I was going to do. I was going to go to university, but I didn't know what I was necessarily going to study. And sort of right at the end of my last year at high school, I saw this, um, segment on like on a, on a sort of youth program about, they profiled a guy who worked in a, um, in a radio station. And I all of a sudden went, oh, there's this whole industry I hadn't even thought about. So I kind of feverishly looked around. I found like a film school, applied for this film school, didn't get into the film school, <laughs> and then thought, oh, now what am I going to do? Uh, and then about a week before the semester started, they rang and said, we've got a place if you want to come. So I was like, okay, right. So I had to pack everything up. I lived in a small town in New Zealand and um, moved to the, the, um, the capital city, Auckland, started this film school. Um, that was three years um, and sort of it was sort of a media media degree really mm -hmm. and you sort of um, so and I didn't even think about television side so you sort of you know you did a few sort of some uh, a few sort of classes in filmmaking but it was at the end of the third year you could specialize but they only took 12 students so I thought oh, I'm never going to get in there's much more talented people so I'll do journalism so I thought well that's what I'm going to do I'm going to study journalism and then went through the second year and then <clears throat> then all of it then sort of, you know, I got these marks and they said, oh, you can come into the television stream if you like. And it's like, oh, okay, I'll do yeah. that. Um, so that's how I, I sort of fumbled my way through my career, basically. Uh, so then I graduated and then I got a cadetship in a, uh, at the National Broadcaster in New Zealand, TVNZ, where they basically take you around uh, all the different departments. And so my first sort of assignment was to work on um, 60 Minutes. Uh, which is the you know the current affairs show, and so mm -hmm. I was there for about a year and a half, and that was like the best kind of training I'd ever had. Sort of working with veteran journalists, you know, camera operators, and I was just like a um, I was recording sound and a camera assist. So I was super junior, but I got to travel around and see how you put stories together. Wow. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of that was kind of my crash course into it, and then I you know worked in different other areas in the broadcaster, and then found myself basically becoming an editor, uh, working in news and current affairs. And then I moved into working on a show and doing all their arts stories. So when bands would touring bands would come through New Zealand, like they'd do profiles on them. And I sort of got assigned to all those kind of stories. Then, um, then I hit 25 and then I thought, all right, I need to go and travel, see the world. So I moved to London and then I freelanced in London, worked for CNN, BBC. Um, then I got a, had a short stint uh, working for the British government as a propagandist, oh. <laughs> making making stories, uh, good news stories about Britain that were getting sent to the Middle East. And that was like a, one of these jobs 
that you could do behind with your, you know, your eyes closed and your hands behind your back. And so, um, uh, I was doing that. It gave me all this free time and access to equipment. And then I started going to, uh, the church in London, which would later become Hillsong London at the time it was London Christian life center. And then I just started making a few things for the, for church in my spare time with access to all this equipment. And, uh, that, became like a two-day job, which became a three-day job, uh, which became a full-time job, which became 14 years later. <laughs> wow. Well, okay. I, I know everyone's ears perked up when they heard Hillsong, but I, my ears perked up when you said uh, a propagandist. <laughs> um, yes. Like, I mean, obviously, we, I, I think we, we know all that stuff goes on, but I, I, this is my own curiosity. So, like, what I mean, was it just taking like file footage or, or current news stories about Britain and just throwing them together into like commercials? Yeah, Is that so, what it was? well, it was the sort of, you know, like, so if you, if you know anything about news, they have uh, these wires, um, companies like Reuters, um, Associated yeah. Press, and they basically package together stories that, you know, other broadcasters around the world that potentially, you know, don't have the budgets to send correspondence to all the hotspots in the world. Anyway, so there was this one that we worked for, which was, I mean, it wasn't secret or anything. It yeah, was known yeah. that it was funded funded by the British government and everything. And basically it was like, let's look at world events and put a British spin on it. And, okay. you know, so that was kind of the, you know, and it was always very positive positive to Britain and all that. Anyway, it was just, I wasn't really involved in the politics of it. I was just the guy that was pushing the buttons, yeah. putting the stories together um, <laughs> just because it paid well. And it was like a nine to five and it gave me all this free time to travel and do other things that I had come to, you know, Europe to do. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That just, that intrigues me for some reason, but, but okay. So, um, you know, people, people hear Hillsong, um, you know, you said the 14 years of your life. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it was six years in London and then eight years in Sydney. I'm not sure if that adds up to 14. Maths yeah. is not my strong point. <laughs> I think it does. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so uh, could you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what your experiences were there? And, and something I would specifically like to know is what did you learn uh, as a filmmaker, you know, during that 14-year time? Um, yeah, I, I, again, like I never plan to work for a church that just kind of sort of happened. It wasn't, wasn't something that I had a, you know, a master plan to do. I actually never thought that those two worlds would ever, um, come together because I had my professional skills. Then my faith was something separate. And, you know, this is like the early two thousands where, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of media going on in church world anyway. Um, which seems crazy now because, you know, it's so saturated with sort of media. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it wasn't something I particularly planned, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I did a lot of learning there for sure, and I, I think what I learned is you have to make a lot of things, and most of it will be really terrible, and you learn by <laughs> failing, basically. Um, the more you do, the more you learn, and, and the more you start to find your own voice and figure out what works. Um, I think there's very few individuals that are born that can just like kind of tell amazing stories from scratch. Um, I think it's it's a it's a real process, and, and you know, hopefully, you're sort of looking back at your work, you know, even every two or three years, and kind of cringing at, at the work you've made. I think that's yeah. good because it kind of shows that you have progress. Because you know, you, everyone's you're sort of a Scorsese in their mind, but you know, with the hands, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, 
but I think, yeah, I mean, I think I really became to value the arts more um, and particularly in, in pursuit of a gospel message. Um, Ian Cron um, is one of my favorite authors. Uh, he says um, the church needs artists to help people see clearly what we all feel vaguely. And I think that's a really great um uh, a great synopsis of what the role of the artist is uh, to help kind of, you know, we all feel these things and have these sort of, you know, um, things that float around, but the artist is really able to kind of put it into tangible ways uh, for people to really grasp whether it's a song or it's a, it's a film or it's writing or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so I think we just, we made a lot of stuff um, and we failed a lot and then we had some successes. And I think just the pure, you know, having to do it every week, find stories, tell stories um, is really was super, you know, it was the best training ever. Film school's great and all that, but nothing really kind of um, can um, replace the actual doing the work. Um and I think also, you know, that time is, was really kind of um, learning to trust the audience mm. and actually taking taking people on that journey because I find this is the same whether it's in the church or in the commercial space, it's exactly the same, that people who are in charge are usually really, they, they don't, they're afraid to trust the audience, that the audience can, you know, join their own dots. Um, and I think um, this is a great quote by this uh, Romanian playwright, um, Eugene Inesco, uh, and he says over explanation separates us from astonishment and I think there's always this temptation to over explain to you know not trust your audience that they're smart enough to figure it out and sort of so telling stories that, that give the audience some work to do you know that they have to kind of journey with it and kind of wrestle with it and there'd be tension that everything isn't always tied up with a nice bow at the end um, so I think those are the most those are the stories that work um I guess what I've found over the years, whereas those are the ones that ring true where there's gray and there's a bit of mess and um, there's tension. Those are the most memorable ones rather. Cause again, like getting back to propaganda, everything that just ends nicely with a nice bow, sort of like, it's not usually our experience of life. Yeah. So those stories can kind of not ring super true, you know, like they're a bit like, ah, a bit cheesy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so real life tends to be a little more gray. And I think if you can have that in your stories, um, I think it, it connects more with an audience and you trust your audience. And, you know, it's like when you go to see a film yourself and you're sitting there and you start like joining the dots and you like feel like a champion. You're like, yeah. oh, yes, I know what's going to happen, you know, uh, rather than I've, I've, some films I've seen and it's like, yeah, I, I know what's going on. But then someone, you know, you can tell it's some executive is like put in like this kind of sort of over explanation and you're like, oh, it was so unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I kind of want to ask, we I've had a couple of guests on on the show before where we've we've discussed that over explanation um and i'd just mm. like to get get your opinion i mean why do you think in the church world specifically we tend to fall more on the over explanation side as opposed to the mystery side um well it's everyone's different but i think there is a there is sort of a for me i think it really it comes down to do we trust the Holy Spirit, you know, mm -hmm. do we trust that God has actually got people or is it all, you know, I think we put too much pressure on ourselves that we are somehow supposed to be getting people saved, you know, um, instead of um, allowing, you know, we're just the conduit, we're just the, we're just sort of the, 
you know, showing people to the door. We're not, we aren't the door. Um, you know, and I, you see it in Jesus' teaching all the time. Like he left, there was a lot of mystery in his parables and left a lot of people yeah. confused and didn't like join the dots for them. Um, so I, I think it comes down to a, there's sort of probably an underlying fear of not trusting people enough to get it or, you know, and it all comes from a good place. It's like, you know, we have this really important message and we really want you to get it. But I'm always of the opinion that that if someone can talk you into something, then you can be talked out of it. Mm. But if you discover you discover a truth for yourself, yeah. then it's yours. No one can take that from you. And I feel like in, in storytelling, you know, when you're watching something and you're telling a story and people get it for themselves, then it's like it becomes like the pearl of great price. You know, it's like it's this thing that you have um, that that is yours. And I just, you know, you know, it's the same in the commercial space as well. Like you see the same thing, you know, client brands and whatever they, you know, they're really, they really hold their, whatever it is, their, their thing really with a lot of value, which is a good thing um, and can be a bit reticent to take risks. Um, but, you know, I think that the, and the risks are where some, some, some of the great stuff happens, I think. Yeah. Right. Storytelling. Well, that's good. That, that, that's a very good answer. I appreciate that. Um, I, I, I love your film reel on your website, paulnevison.com. And so we'll, we'll link that to the show notes because I would encourage anyone to go watch uh, the films you have uh, on your website. But one thing is I was kind of watching through them and, and, and some of your older work even. Uh, you you really tell real stories in your work um, in the commercial space and in the church space and um, I, it just seems to me like that really appeals to you and, and, and looking at very real subjects and human subjects um, can you explain a little bit maybe what drives you to tell those kind of stories as opposed to the abstract or you know just fictional mm. narratives yeah, well, I mean, my it's partly to do with my background, like coming up through news, current affairs, documentaries. That's kind of always been my first kind of passion, I guess, and what I, I first knew. Um, but it's what I'm interested in. Um, I'm only interested in stories that, you know, they either have to move me or challenge me or I always think, well, otherwise, why tell the story mm-hmm. um, if there's nothing there? That, and so for me, real stories are... You know things that rattle my own cage and 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 challenge my own worldview. Um, I'm kind of interested in that um, because yeah, otherwise being super safe and kind of just being in an echo chamber and just listening and doing things that kind of reinforce your own worldview. I don't think that's I don't think that's really living. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> I think um, I think it's yeah. You know. Um, so yeah. So real stories. Um, you know, and I, I don't know, like, I mean, and I also have a, like a real justice kind of bent. Um, I've always had that. And so a lot of the stories I do are sort of in the developing world. And and I think about, you know, where I was born and then some of the people that I spend time with and where they were born and the circumstances that they have to live with. And then I think, well, what's our responsibility? What's my responsibility to the majority of the world that don't live, you know, in, in comfortable conditions uh, where they're struggling to get food on the table or send the kids to school and I think well I've been given these gifts and these people don't have much of a voice so what can I do to help amplify and how can I challenge myself (laughs) firstly and then the people that I'm on the bus with or on the train with how can I challenge them to look beyond their own circumstances to look at the bigger picture of the world that we live in Um, so that's I guess why I'm sort of drawn to them Um, I think like you know this and work 
good work, there should be sort of like an honesty to it and an ache. Um, and the, you know, the honesty of like seeing things as they really are, not as we, you know, wish them to be. Um, and then the ache of like, you know, feeling it, feeling, feeling, stuff so and it doesn't always have to be the you know the suffering of the world but it can be you know feeling the ache of laughter when you're yeah. celebrating with someone or um just but that kind of getting into what it means to be human i mean the difference between us and a rock i guess is that we feel and that's that's what it means to be human so um how do we tell and tap into those emotions and um you know what it means to be human so that's why i'm sort of led to those kinds of stories uh a friend of mine uh he's he said oh he asked me you know what i do and and i said well you know i go around the world and i tell people stories and da, da, da. anyway and he goes oh okay so your job is really to go to places that others can't to feel what it's like to be there and then accurately transcribe that for others and when he said that, I was like, yeah, wow, yeah. I should probably put that on a business card or something. But <laughs> it was actually like a really kind of like succinct description of what my job is. And and it was totally rung true. It's like, yeah, I go where others can't. My job while I'm there is to feel it. And I do. Like I'm super, I'm a pretty empathetic person. So, you know, I'm a, in all my interviews, I'm weeping with the, with the person, you know, because I'm just, I'm just that guy. Um but I mean, you need to, for me, like to really tell a truthful story, you need to feel it. You need to feel what's going on with those people. Um, because, you know, I've worked with some people and it's just, ah, oh, it's just a story like any, you know, yeah. a dime a dozen. But it's like, no, 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 this is these people's life. This is their life. This isn't some story for some video that's going to go on some, you know, event or whatever. Like this is someone sharing like the intimate details of their life and the things that really matter. And so you have to hold that with respect and hold that with value um, and accurately transcribe it so that other people can walk in their shoes, feel what that's like. Um, you know, and for me, that's I guess that's that's what I'm drawn to. Um, and, you know, and it's easier, I guess, sometimes when you're finding your own stories where you have a role in finding the stories and you know I've had both where I get to sort of you know research the mind story find that this is the story we want to do and then other times I'm given a story which is a little more tricky but then you have still have to dig you have to dig hard you know because on the surface it might not like seem there's there's, yeah. there's a whole lot there but that's your job to dig down and find the gold um that's there um, and, you know, and, and then also even sometimes when you're speaking to people, they don't want to tell you the truth. So you have to learn how to find the truth in people. And often that's like leaving really long pauses in interviews because people <laughs> will usually like fill that, they get uncovered and they'll fill it with the truth. Yeah. Um, or oh, the other thing I'm known for is really long interviews. I do really long interviews because sometimes people have to say everything they've prepared. And then when they've run out of everything they've prepared, then they usually start telling you the truth. Um, so they're all little uh, little tricks tricks of the trade I guess but I mean that's what comes across the best is truth and transparency um, and sometimes you, you know you're, you're working with people and sometimes they, they don't well you know they've got an image that they want to um, protect or um, but you know as you know when you watch something you know when something's truthful when something's transparent yeah. and then you're right there with you know you're right there with that person when they're telling you the truth versus just giving you this kind of veneer of what they want to present to the world. Um, so yeah, real is, it's tricky, you know, like it's, it's attractive, but it's elusive. 
And sometimes, like I've said to other people, um, some of the best things I've done, it's like I wasn't even there. I just turned up, hit record, and it all just happened in front of me. And then other ones, like I really could have labored and really, you know, tried to do everything I could, and it just just didn't work. So yeah. it's super elusive, you know, like there's, there's sort of no formula to it. Um, wish there was, but it kind of isn't. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, like I said, it's it's just watching those those. Uh, many documentaries and those those things that you did. I mean, they they definitely come through, and the honesty and the realness comes through. Um, you know, one thing is is and plus, I think what you just said is it's not a formula, but you definitely threw out more tips and tricks in that little segment right there than I think <laughs> I think most people well, knew. You know. It's the, it's the other um, the other guy, Robert Frost, he says, uh, and I think he's more mostly referring to writing, but he says, you know, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. Yeah. And, like, that's such a powerful thing because I know when I'm editing, when I'm sitting in the edit and I feel like I feel it, you know, and, like, I feel those moments and, like, then you kind of know if I'm getting moved in this moment, then I've got a, there's a good chance that other others are going to feel it as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's just the way I approach work that I can't do it any other way. I mean, there's a, there's a tax on that in the sense of like, you know, you can feel really emotionally drained and you know, this, I've just done six weeks of, uh, three, three trips to different parts of really hard parts of the world. And so, you know, it is draining on your sort of emotional kind of reservoir and, you know, you come home to your family who haven't experienced all that. And so there can be a sort of an interesting, you know, recalibration, yeah. um, but you know, but for me, that that's where the best—that's the how the best stories are told, in my opinion. You know, that's what works for me. Yeah. I don't know how it works for others, but yeah. Well, a, a couple questions out of that. Um, and first of all, uh, this is maybe more just of a your work process. So you know, you you come back off these trips. If you don't have a like a super tight deadline, like you need to put it all together in the next week. Say you have three weeks, four weeks, like, are you prone to immediately get into the edit bay and start going through it and building it out? Or do you need to take a little bit of time, maybe a day or two to decompress? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so you need some time to just kind of like, just be with your family and be yeah. with your kids and go to the, go to the beach and yeah. just, you know, <laughs> you know, just do something that's fun and light, particularly if you've done a particularly heavy kind of a story. Uh, but then I actually do like to get into the edit as soon as I can, just so it's fresh and that mm -hmm. you're still, you still have it on you, you know, like yeah. you still have the feeling and the smell and the, you know, like it's, you're, you're still kind of half there. And I find if the, if you leave it too long, then you lose something it's this I don't know it's the magic dust I guess I don't know yeah. <laughs> of, of what it was like to be in that moment um so and this sort of last sort of six seven weeks has been a bit unusual for me because I've just had trip and then I've had to get in a quick edit and then a trip 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 kind of thing and so there's a couple of stories which I'm only getting into now which are a lot you know it's been maybe three or four weeks since I was at the place so that's a bit long for me because you start to kind of lose and you have you you, you forget you forget stuff yeah um so I prefer as 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 much as possible to get into the edit pretty quickly you are uh, fully on the commercial side or freelance side of things now and and how long have you been in that world 100 percent uh about 18 months yeah. okay yeah um so so in this time i know it's it's probably you're still learning um as you go but just in this time what are some of the biggest challenges you've had transitioning from the full-time church work to to full-time freelance 
Uh, well, uh, will anyone hire me? <laughs> uh, am I any good? And how long will I be uh, till I'll be living in a cardboard box? <laughs> Those are sort of the immediate kind of fears. Um, but, you know, I'd had a good run and, you know, uh, it just was time for a different chapter and there were some other things that I kind of wanted to pursue. Um, like I still do things for Hillsong. Like I just, I just wrapped from a, from a shoot with them uh, about a week ago. Um, and, you know, and I still do a lot of work in the sort of the NGO space. So, you know, I do work for Compassion and World Vision and a few other ones. Um, so I'm still kind of doing that kind of work, which is a sort of, a, it sort of ruined me for like, like I probably couldn't go and do a car commercial, yeah. you know, like I probably couldn't <laughs> just sell stuff, you know, I kind of have to do something that kind of has a bit of heart to it. Yeah. Um, I don't know, maybe there is heart in car commercials. I'm not really sure, but. No, um, no, no, there's not. <laughs> if you love cars, there's definitely okay. heart. Um, but yeah, I mean, I haven't, you know, well, it's just the usual stuff when you've been doing something for so long and you get comfortable and then you have this big kind of life change and we moved cities and we kind of moved everything. We had like a big change in our life. So there's just always that kind of like, what am I doing? Am I crazy kind of stuff? Um, but, you know, I, I sort of believe that, you know, God's got you and, and you know, none of my careers thus far has been planned. Like it just all kind of happened sort of, you know, small steps and doorways. So I'm just kind of going through the next doorways, I guess. Um, and so far, so good. We're not in a cardboard box. Yeah. Although this room you can see could be a cardboard box, not the most <laughs> tiny room. But anyway. <laughs> uh, well, uh, okay. So you, you bring up the car commercial and, and uh, a second ago when you were just talking about stories need to be honest and you, you feel the emotion yourself. Um, in, in some of the commercial work that you've done, like what happens when you, when honestly it's like, how do you keep it from just being a job? you know, or a paycheck or something like that. What if, mm -hmm. what if the, the subject matter really is hard to find that, that heart in that honesty? Yeah, I tend to, I, I wouldn't, well, I tend to not take those, that kind of work yeah. because I just know what it would do to me. I just know that I'd just become grumpy and just <laughs> like not, a, not a great person, you know? Yeah. So I, I tend to be really choosy about the jobs that I do do that they have to kind of align with, you know, how I see the world and, um, you know, not to say I wouldn't do some kind of, you know, like for a friend of mine, he, like he, he, he just did, um, did, did a few fun jobs that had like, you know, big budgets. And so it was just fun to just kind of play with like lots of equipment and, yeah. you know, and just make fun, beautiful pictures, you know, not everything doesn't have to be super serious and like, you know, worthy, um, you know, like you can still do things that are just like artistic and, and beauty, you know, like a friend of mine, you know, work on music videos that don't necessarily have, you know, you know, super solid story. It's very tenuous, but you know, they just had fun making some really great images and, you know, and it was a great track and all that. Um, so yeah, so for me, just personally, though, I'd just be super picky about what I do and it kind of needs to align with, with, yeah, what's, what, how I see the world. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And, 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 and for me, it's not just about the work, it's who you work with too. So like I need to work with people I like, like I have to enjoy the journey because for me, like money, yeah, you need money to like kind of pay the bills and all that, but it's not my driving factor. Yeah. Um, it's like, is the work interesting? And then is it also, am I doing it with interesting people that I enjoy working with? And if sort of, if it's, I just wouldn't take a job if it was like, well, maybe I would, I haven't been offered a, a job with massive money. Maybe, uh, maybe that would test 
test me, but um, it would be, <laughs> but to do, to do it with a massive paycheck and then hate the journey. Yeah. Um, I just, I don't know, life's short and I just don't know if I have the time for that. You know, I'd much rather do something smaller budget with people that I really love yeah. and people who are passionate about the job and passionate about their craft. Um, that's just way more attractive to me. Uh, that's a great answer. And, you know, I, I want to kind of lead into you to talk about uh, working with people you love and whether it be clients or, you know, fellow crew members. Um, uh, I, one thing that, that really appeals to me that I still struggle with doing um, is collaboration and working with, with, mm. with people together to create something. Um, when, you, when you're working with those people that you like working with, um, like how valuable is it to be able to collaborate with them on a project? Uh, collaboration is everything. Um, it just makes the work so much better. Um, makes you look so much better too. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, oh, cause I've, I've been the one man band kind of, you know, shoot it, edit it, do the sound, do everything, you know, I've been that guy and now I work in slightly bigger crews and, you know, and it's varied over, you know, over, over the years. Um, but yeah, working with people who, better than you is just the best who you know and now I've transitioned now to more just like directing like I barely ever touch a camera um and but to know you know the DPs I work with like they're just really great and they just um there has to be a synergy and and the more you work with someone there's you develop a shorthand yeah. with them and so they're kind of already anticipating what you want and so that you know takes a bit of time to build up the first time can be a bit frustrating because you're like you're sort of reaching out for the camera you know <laughs> like see that shot and then you know uh, and you're hoping they're getting it all and all that but um yeah i mean you can't i mean sometimes you have to do everything on your own but if you if you can work with others find others and it makes it way better and then your job as the director is to really effectively communicate your vision and i think that's probably one of the biggest sort of challenges and transitions i had to make from when you're making everything yourself you don't have to really communicate or you communicate very little you know to others but then suddenly you're giving the camera to someone and then you've got suddenly you've got a composer on and you've got a sound designer and you've got you know different people and then you have to really effectively communicate what's been sitting in your heart yeah. you have to be able to find the words to uh, you know to be able to communicate that to others and that's I guess that's probably the biggest thing I've been learning is how to do that effectively because you, know, you want to set them up to flourish and you know and to be the best that they can um, it's interesting I was talking to a friend recently we were talking about a particular film and like had an amazing DP and uh, amazing crew but the film just didn't really didn't really go to where we thought it would go and we were sort of talking about well, why would that be because because all the individually all these crafts people are amazing like the top yeah. of their game and then we thought it's the director I guess the director didn't communicate or there was there was a struggle there or a disconnect there that didn't allow these people to really flourish and really show what they could do so so I think that's yeah that's the responsibility of the director to you know really kind of communicate well and and then let people you know and be hands off and let them do their thing you know they're not a particularly micromanaging managing kind of director, you know, yeah. telling the DP to go, go a little bit left and a little bit right and tell him what lens he should use and all that. Um, but yeah, collaboration. Anyway, back to the question, collaboration. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, 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 I wanted to say that, like, <laughs> like I suppose it's, it's been like incredibly difficult to let go in those areas. So, like, I mean, it's, it's like, it's gotta be tough to, to not touch the camera, <laughs> you know? Mm. 
Like, I mean, is that just something you learn over time is to learn to trust that person? Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, at the start, it was very difficult because I just used to shoot everything. And even if another guy was shooting, I'd still have a camera just so I could get the shots that I was seeing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like, but now, you know, I, you know, particularly the couple of DPs that I now work with, like, they're so much better than me. And when I see what they've, how they've captured a scene, I'm like, wow, you did it. You saw stuff that I never even saw. So, like, cool, just go for it, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it is a transition if you have been, you know, on the tools a lot more. Um, I still haven't got out of editing. Like, I just don't know if I could ever work through an editor. <laughs> I, I think that would probably, I don't know, that might be a road too far because um, I just kind of, you because particularly editing is such a feel thing. It's such a rhythmic yeah. thing that it's really hard to go to you know it's like you know to feel it's like music you know trying yeah. to feel it you kind of got to be in the seat and playing it to 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 get it i, I don't know but who knows i have a, maybe if i meet some really incredible editor who just puts me to shame i'll be like you yeah. edit everything <laughs> well it's you know i've thought that like i, I listened to a podcast not too long ago with uh, martin scorsese's editor um and she's right. she's worked on almost every film that he's done and mm -hmm. you know she talks about that tension of of being able to communicate what the director wants and like I was just sitting there thinking like how in the world uh, do you build that relationship and I, and I know there are several editor director relationships um, but I, I feel like I'd be the same way as you it's just like I I, it, I just let me touch it you know let me let me <laughs> yeah. you know just two frames yeah. two frames to the left and we'll call it good you know but it's yeah I, yeah yeah it, it just I don't know like it's giving up that control uh, it's so challenging. I know. We're works in progress. Works in progress. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do want to ask you if you've got a, a story to share. Like, uh, um, what is just one crazy story from a film shoot that that leaps to mind? Uh, I've got a few. Um, you could take your pick, really. Um, uh, there was a time we stayed, uh, had to stay in a brothel in Thailand because we were doing a story on trafficking. Uh, there was a time of the acid attack in India. There was a bombing in Jordan. And then there was a time when we were, uh, there was machine gun fire between takes. Wow. Which, which of those, which of those? <laughs> um, I'm, I'll go right with the middle the bombing in Jordan. What was, what was that all about? Uh, so that was probably it's, it's less less spectacular as it sounds, but uh, we're, I was in Jordan doing a story. Um, this is probably seven years ago, maybe six seven years ago. And uh, anyway, the, the story went fine. We were staying in this hotel in the middle of Amman, and then oh, probably about a month or two later, I was watching the news, and um, and this just what I was what the, the the images were so familiar. I was like. Like what? Like this looks really familiar. And what had happened is basically a suicide bombing had come into this hotel that we were staying in and blown up the lobby. And it was the reason I I sort of recognised it because I could see like the remnants of where we had been sitting. Yeah. Um, like in this lobby, and it was um, it was just one of those like little little too close for comfort kind of <laughs> kind of stories. <laughs> wow. Well, so I mean, you see, so you turned that around on me and said I didn't pick the craziest one. Well, which one was the craziest one? out of those well the craziest well actually probably the most the one i was the yeah the craziest one would have been staying in the brothel in thailand um and it, basically where we were staying it was like this kind of hive of the sex industry so every hotel was a brothel there was no kind of 
you know, that all the hotels were brothels. And so we were there um, and we were there with an investigator and we were basically doing all this filming, the sting kind of stuff where they were getting intel from, from the girls. So we set up all these hidden cameras and that with this investigator wow. and they were trying to, ba- they were basically trying to find out who the networks were. Um, so we had to stay there the night. So they were in this next room. This investigator was there, you know, he was posing as a client and he was just, you know, trying to get information out of them. And then we, it was, it was the most sleepless night I've ever had because we just weren't sure if the girls would then go back and tell the pimps and we'd have people knocking on our door. Um, we're all sp- spread out in different, different rooms in the, in the hotel. So we wouldn't be all together. Uh, and I didn't sl- I basically didn't sleep a wink. And then we left probably about five 30 the next morning, as soon as we could, <laughs> we were sort of out and kind of gone like with wow. the wind. Um, but yeah, I mean that was that was a really quite a heavy trip that we did because we were in and out of like really terrible places yeah. and a lot of hidden kind of camera filming. And again, um, a lot of the places I've gone to, there's a bit of hope because you know there's an NGO working there to provide some help or something. But in this particular instance, there was like we were leaving these girls to their fate. It was pretty pretty awful because yeah. you just couldn't do anything. There's nothing you could do. And these were very young girls and you were in there and we were, you know, filming and then we had to leave them. Um, so that was, yeah, pretty kind of, pretty kind of horrendous. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can't imagine. Um, but it's good that you guys are, you know, I mean, it's good that there's people that are trying to bring light to those, you know, the, the, to these situations. Um, and you got these groups and organizations that will, will, Will you you know use your skills and your talents to try to bring you know awareness to the subject? Um, you know, because and that's what I like about what you do is 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 a lot of the films you've produced and stuff. They they serve, in my opinion, to bring awareness to these situations. Uh, the people in the Western mm-hmm. world maybe don't you know don't think about on a daily basis and maybe not even know about you know. Um, so it's yeah. out, out of the despair. Like, I think it's great that what, what you guys do, um, but you know, that got really heavy for a minute there. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's lighting it right up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you got, like, now cuts to some kind of musical break where there's light yeah, music. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll do some, something fast paced, but, um, Paul, I, I do, as, as we draw to a close, we, we have a series of questions we like to ask, uh, all of our guests. Um, and, and one mm. I'm going to ask you, uh, that we don't ask our other guests is, uh, is there a specific shoot? Maybe not one, uh, the, the brothel one obviously is very memorable, but, is there a specific shoot or maybe a finished product that is just like one of those that you, uh, no matter how many times you watch it, you like it, it's, it moves you and it's, I don't want to say it's your favorite project, but it's just one that like even made an impact on your life. Um, I feel like I haven't made it yet. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. like I, I sort of am really always really dissatisfied with my work um, because sort of what I see in my head versus what I can do with my hands. Yeah. Um, like there's there's a gap, you know, and, and that's a good thing. Like Ira Glass talks yeah. about that and, and how like that's a really good thing, you know, to have that gap, you know, because you're sort of hopefully getting better and you have good taste. Um, so I take some sort of consolation in that. Um, oh, gosh, I don't know. Um is there one? Um, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Um, I mean, all of them, like I have sat there and felt, um, I probably the one that maybe 
doesn't translate, but just because it affected me so much was when we went to Lebanon last year and we were in the um, refugee camps um, and with the uh, Syrian refugees. And that was one of the, yes, probably the heaviest thing I've ever been to. And to the point where we just put our cameras down in the end because it just got, it just didn't feel right to be filming. It was just, you know, because, uh, you know, we're like a 20 minute drive from Damascus and, you know, these people were super educated, really warm, friendly, uh, welcoming people. And they just had nothing and just, just relayed the most horrendous stories. Um, and so we made one uh, thing for, um, world vision. Um, and I don't know if it necessarily translates exactly what we experience. I mean, it never does, but, um, that one is the one probably that I still think about often and I think about this this these families one particular couple who are in their sort of mid 30s you know she was um, studying French literature at the university really well educated um, uh, really lovely couple had a little child and he said to us um, you know like if at any other time you know we'd come and visit they would have taken us down to the down to the lake and they would have prepared a barbecue for us and then he talked about the things that they had witnessed because they were in Raqqa in the um, you know basically ISIS mm-hmm. de facto ISIS capital and they just said that we're, we're, this is not Syrian this is not Islam we've never seen anything like this these people are animals and um, and and foreigners basically because they were they're all back most mostly from Belgium and and the UK and France so they weren't actually from the Middle East at all mm-hmm. um, so those people were really stuck with me just because they were everything opposite to what you would hear from the politicians and um, most media out, you know, like yeah. mainstream media yeah. who demonize these people. And he said to me, he says, I don't understand why you're afraid of us. We're afraid. We're to leave our home in the middle of the night because a missile tore through our house. We are afraid. Why are you afraid of us? Wow. And, um, and those people will just stay with me forever. And then again, we had to leave them. You know, there was nothing we could do. Um, but, you know, they wanted to have their voice heard because, you know, they had no voice uh, and were in a situation where there, nothing was going to change. So, um, so yeah, so that one is, yeah, um, probably one that sticks with me. It's not necessarily the greatest execution because we're super restricted on what we could film and couldn't film and how long we could be there. So as a sort of a craft piece, it's not particularly amazing, but um, what it sort of starts to highlight um I think was really important and what it did for me was was really um, impacting for sure. 